following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I've titled the sermon, A Church to Boast About. A Church to Boast About. Friends, I invite you to hear the words of our living God from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the word of our living God. Thanks be to God. Well, the two letters of Paul to the church in Thessalonica point us to a church that was experiencing heavy and ongoing persecutions and trials and false teachings and various battles in this midst of a bustling and prosperous Roman city. It was filled with all sorts of people from differing backgrounds and faiths. And this little church was there. It was steadfast and it was strong. There was Jews and Gentiles all congregated in the city. It's a city that was roughly the size of Las Cruces in population which for that time was a pretty large city. Not the largest in the area, not the largest in Rome, but a pretty large city. And it was special in so many ways. It sat perfectly as this trading hub. It was gulf opened up to the Aegean Sea. It sat on one of the most important travel routes for trade in the Roman Empire, the Via Ignatia. Commerce would travel from Rome down a different route called the Via Appia, would go across the Adriatic Sea and then it would catch this route via Ignatia. And this is how it would take its northern route of Greece all the way to Byzantium and then on beyond there. Thessalonica was this central hub that connected Rome to Byzantium. It was an important, prosperous city. But even more so than that, it was also a free city. After many battles had been fought over Thessalonica and over the land, it was given freedom by the Roman Empire, which meant that it could have local governance and could have some tax immunities. And it was kind of, in a sense, a place to be. It was a spot that you wanted to be in because there was jobs, there were some freedoms, there was opportunities that maybe weren't available in other areas. 
It was a place to be as long as you weren't a Christian. As long as you didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this was the spot. It was not a bad place to be. Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, planted a church there and almost immediately were faced with various persecutions and trials. They were run out of the city. However, this did not deter this fledgling church. They're actually commended by Paul as being a church that was steadfast and enduring. Paul even says back in his first letter to them, chapter 2 and verse 20, that they are his glory and joy. That alone should just cause us to pause for a minute and ask the question, what would make them so special to Paul? Why would he talk about him like that? Why would he say, you were my glory and my joy? Paul traveled a lot. He was all over the place. He was founding many churches and he said something so special about them. Well, today we're going to get a glimpse into the reason that the Thessalonica church was worth commending, was worth boasting about, was worth being called his glory and his joy. Our text gives us a small glimpse into why it was just so special. The thing is, is that they were not commended because of a gifting that only they had. They were not commended because they were the largest or the most wealthiest of churches. They were not commended because they were in the large city like Thessalonica. They were not commended because of something that was meant to be extraordinary, but because they were doing what was ordinary, and they were doing it so well. They were commended because they were doing what they had been called to do, because the Spirit was alive and moving in the church. They were commended for being faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were commended for living according to that belief. The interesting fact is that Paul is writing this very letter to address concerns. It's funny because as you go on, he's going to call on them to continue to stand firm. He's going to call on them to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus had not returned yet. There was false teachers going around saying that the Lord Jesus had already come and they were left behind. So he's addressing these various struggles and trials. There's people who are living in idleness not working, not trying to survive. They were just trying to just be there. And so as he's addressing all of these things, he starts off, though, by saying, you're worth commending. So it wasn't a perfect church. It wasn't the church that it says is just always right and never has any issues or never has any struggles. But rather, it was a church that was doing something right and was worth commending. Paul gives us three areas here that will be our three points for why this is a church to be boasted about. First, it's a saved church. Secondly, it's a spirit-filled church. And finally, it's a steadfast church. As we look at our text today, may it help us grow as a body of believers and strive to be a church that is worthy of such commendation knowing that we are going to be imperfect because we are sinners. Saved sinners, right? We are saved, but we are still sinners. We are still battling our own fallenness. We are still putting to death our flesh and our minds. But may we strive to be like the church in Thessalonica, that we might be 
commendable, that it might be worth boasting about. Friends, listen to the first two verses again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The introduction of the authors, right? We see this similar greeting in the first letter. He says the same thing. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. As we know, Paul was the founder of the church in Thessalonica. We see that back in Acts chapter 17, which we'll read a little bit in, uh, in just a little while. Something worth noting that in these letters, Paul does not qualify his name. In every other letter, he seems to say, Paul an apostle or Paul a servant. He seems to give sign a clarification, but he doesn't do that here. Why? It's a good question to ask, and there's a couple of things that could be put forward. One, there is no issue with his authority. No one questioned his authority as an apostle. And two, because of a personal tone. He had spent some time there. He knew the people. He knew their love for the Lord. And so he didn't need to readdress his authority as he spoke. He could just say, brothers, hear me. This is Paul. Silvanus, also known as Silas, Paul's missionary partner. He ministered with him in various locations, not only in Thessalonica, but in Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. We see that from Acts 17.10. He was with him in Corinth. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Second Corinthians again, he says Silas is, is mentioned there as being one of the men who had ministered with Paul. Silvanus or Silas became Peter's amanuensis, meaning that he wrote the words of Peter. Peter was speaking them and Silas or Silvanus would have been writing them for him. And he quite possibly delivered the letter. We see uh, the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in him. And then finally, we have this brother Timothy, which we all have spent numerous times together and getting to know Timothy and hearing of his love for the church. Timothy, Paul's beloved child in the faith a native of Lystra. He served as a faithful assistant and brother in this ministry alongside Paul. Became Paul's representative on many instances. We see it in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he said, when we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Acts 19, 22, we see, and having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while, talking about Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that is why I sent you Timothy. We see it again in Corinthians to Philemon, and then even in, or sorry, to Philippians. And even in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, obviously we know that he spent a bit of time in Ephesus. Most of his ministry was in Ephesus. So you get these three men of great stature in the faith. 
Paul, the famous author and defender of the faith, the man who is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Silvanus and Timothy, faithful brothers. And they write this letter, and it says, To the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of the Thessalonians. We heard much about the city of Thessalonica. But if you'll turn back with me to Acts chapter 17, just real briefly, we'll just take a look at this founding of the church. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Paul was on his second missionary journey. And this is Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where the synagogue of the Jews, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, this fledgling church, right? As did many great, uh, or as did a great many of the Greeks, and not few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set, in, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What a powerful little saying right there, huh? They have turned the world upside down. Thessalonica, this hub of trade and commerce, this bustling city with Jew and Gentile, had been turned upside down because Paul and Silas had spent three Sabbath days proclaiming Christ. And from there they moved on to Berea and to Athens and then to Corinth, where 1 Thessalonians was most likely written. And then the second letter coming just a few months later. And he says, To the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul points to their status as believers. He says, not that they knew of God the Father, but he said, you are in God the Father. They had an eternal place with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Something interesting here is only in this letter and in the intro to 1 Thessalonians does Paul describe the believers as being in God the Father. The church is facing persecutions of all sorts. Paul reminds the believers that they have a special union with God. That the Father has a care for the church as they persevere. The reality is is that as Christians, including those in Thessalonica, when this letter was written, they have a special and eternal union, right? Something that is unique only to believers. Something that only a saved person could know. Only believers say, as in 2 Peter chapter 1, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It is only because of 
being a believer that you can echo Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, see that this was a saved church. The members of this church were saved people. He wouldn't say to them, just that you've heard of this. He says you were in them. You were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And since you are, you can trust the promises that were made. You can trust that the Lord hears your pleas, that he hears your cries, that he knows everything that you're going through and he is answering according to his will. That beautiful word of just saying in. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace, the unmerited favor given to a sinner at salvation. Peace, that which we have in the Father at our salvation. Grace and peace are only found if we are saved. And he says, from God the Father. Notice the source of the grace and peace. It is from the Father and the Son. Christ is placed rightly next to the Father, affirming not only his deity, but his equality with the Father. And he says, by them, the Father and the Son, grace and peace be with you. Knowing that the church was a converted church. It was a group of believers that were truly saved. They had been called and saved. Reading just ahead a little bit in chapter 2 of this book in verses 13 and 14 he says but we all always to give thanks to you uh, thanks to god for you brothers beloved by the lord because god chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our lord jesus christ friends this was a saved church We see a church that has been truly called and truly believes. Does this mean that the church was perfect? Does this mean that there was not some unsaved people within the community? By no means. But what it does mean is that the church was comprised of people who had heard the gospel. And for the most part, most of them were saved individuals. They were showing signs of true conversion, which we're going to see as we look down in the the passage a little further. The fruit was being shown as they were put to, te- put, the te- sorry, put to the test in persecutions and false teachings. As they were being attacked by various trials and tribulations, fruit was manifesting all the more. Paul continues to say just that, that the Spirit was clearly working in the lives of the believers. Because why? They were growing in love and faith. So let's turn to our next point, a spirit-filled church. Here, verse 3 again. We ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. This word ought... Ophelio 
has this deep obligation or responsibility. It's as if they know exactly where this is coming from, right? They don't look to the Thessalonians and they say, Thessalonians, you are great in and of yourselves. He says, we ought to give thanks to who? God, because of what is being done in you. He looks to them and he says, we give thanks to God for the believers here. Why? Because it is only by God's mercy and grace that Paul could even call them brothers, that he could even reach to them and say, I am thankful for you. It was indeed right that he did so. Paul looks upon this church, this body of believers, and says, Lord, look at your sovereignty. Look at your grace that they can be saved. In the midst of this city that is rampant with various beliefs and various peoples and worshipers of Dionysus and all of these false gods, he says, it's only by you, Lord, that they are saved, and it is only by your redemptive plan that they could be counted as brothers. Notice he doesn't use a variety of words to count their condition as saved. He doesn't say redeemed. He doesn't call them even saved or believers, but he says brothers. Paul points to where the salvation comes from or what comes from salvation. He says, not only are you saved by grace and given peace with God, but you're made heirs with Christ. You're adopted as family members of God. And so I can count you as brothers now. And he says, why should he give thanks to God? First, for their salvation, because it is right, but also because their faith is growing abundantly. The faith of the believers in Thessalonica was growing abundantly. The Greek word means to a beyond measure, beyond expectation. It's going to such a level that they can't even, he's, it's, it's almost surprising. It's almost shocking and it's weird because Paul knows what should be expected. He knows what God can do, but he says, you're growing abundantly beyond what I could have even thought. And he gives thanks because the believers in Thessalonica were showing their faith to be genuine as they grew in it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is needed or what is lacking in your faith. He prays for them. And then in his second letter, he answers and he says, My prayer was answered. You're growing abundantly. Talk about the power of prayer, right? We see Paul saying that he prays for them earnestly. And the prayer is answered. All the more reason for us to approach the Father in prayer, especially as we ask to grow in faith ourselves. Saying, Lord, please help us. Help us grow. Help us to help supply whatever is lacking in our faith. The church was facing this onslaught of persecution, but they were growing in the midst of it. The beauty of persecution, though, is it puts to death false faith. It puts to death that which is not true. I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 13. You're more than welcome to join me there, but no pressure. I'm going to read this for us. Matthew chapter 13. You all know this uh, parable, the parable of the sower. And starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter, thing, uh, chapter 13. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. 
and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them the things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on a rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprung up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And just a little later in verse 18, he explains this. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. It snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation comes, which it will, or persecution, persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this, one who hear, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This church was a growing church. It was a faithful church. And the persecution that had come was not something that was bad. It was not something that was wrong. It was purifying. It was cleansing out those that had been in this weak soil, with this very thin soil. The persecution came and they just were burned up and they were gone. They left. The persecution came and all of the, the various desires as they lived in this bustling metropolis of Thessalonica and they saw the riches and the wealth and as they lost their jobs and their homes, as they were abused like Jason and his friends, as they saw that happening, they ran away. And Paul now is writing to this church of ones where they had gotten some depth. They had received the word fully and they had said, we're going to stay with this. Because it's truth. Persecution reveals true faith. Because true faith cannot be destroyed. 1 Peter chapter 1. We read this just a little earlier. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in Romans 8, 35-39, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Persecution drives the believer to God. The growth in faith showed that they were truly believers. They were a saved church, a spirit-filled church. As the sanctification of the spirit just allowed them to continue to grow and grow and strengthen and strengthen. That they might have more faith to battle the various trials. And notice he says a second place that they're growing. He says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul had previously commended this church for their love. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 3, he mentions it. He says, Remembering before God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said it again in verse, or chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all, all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But yet, he had still prayed it would increase. A church that is abounding already. And he says, I want to see more. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, he had said, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Another answered prayer for growth. Timothy had reported that the church was growing in love for one another. Love was a key characteristic of the church, right? That is what we are called to do. John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, this is the call on the life of the believer. Love is a necessary attribute that points to genuine salvation. It's a fruit that we see. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you ex- ex- excel in this act of grace also. Galatians chapter 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This church was a spirit-filled church. It was a church that was growing, the spirit-filled being that it was sanctifying the church, that it was clearing out any anger or hatred for one another and putting in more and more love for one another and for the church as a whole. So frequently, they, people get caught up in their local community and all they're thinking about is their local church and not that we shouldn't. But we should have a genuine desire that the church as a whole grows in truth. That the church goes out as a whole and grows in love. It is clear that a church worth boasting or commending is a church that is both a saved church and a spirit-filled church. It doesn't point to some special power though. It's not like what we see from the prophets. We're not expecting for the staff to be thrown down and turn into a snake. We're not expecting fire to come down and burn up everything. It's only a special gift in the fact that you've been saved and that it's only possible by the inner working of the Spirit as it sanctifies it, as it sanctifies the believer. So many so-called churches are caught up on whether you have this gift of tongues or prophecy or of healings. But what Paul is commending this church for is not on any of that. 
He doesn't ask how many of them have spoken in tongues or prophesied or healed somebody. He says, you have faith and you have love. And those things are growing. Friends, let us not be caught up on things that are not essential. Let us be caught up on things that are worth commending. Let us be caught up in growing faith and growing love. And friends, let us look now to our last point. A steadfast church. Verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Therefore we ourselves boast about you. Because of these reports of their endurance and the persecution, they say, we, we ourselves, this new and burgeoning church that was being spoken so highly of, as it is to say, they were truly amazed of the work that was being done by the church in Thessalonica. However, notice this is not something that the church is mentioned as doing, but rather that the authors are talking about. He says, Paul and his companions speak highly of them. It's not that the church is going out and saying, look at all that we are doing. They're just trying to, at this point, in some ways, survive. They're just trying to make it day by day as the persecution and the onslaught comes. They're just trying to hold on to the faith as tightly as they can, grasping onto Christ, growing in love, taking care of one another. As fellow brothers and sisters lost their homes, as they lost their jobs, as they had to pay up money to be able to just continue living, the brothers and sisters came around them and helped them and grew in love and support for one another. This is such a contrast to what we would normally hear. Paul doesn't normally just talk about boasting. Except for to say that it's something you shouldn't do, right? But he says he boasts about them in the churches. The funny part is they are probably writing this letter from Corinth, which has been immersed in a struggle after struggle after struggle. It's almost as if you could hear Paul standing before the church at Corinth and saying, look at Thessalonica, be like them. Be followers of Thessalonica as they are followers of Christ. He looks at Corinth and he says, guys, not saying that Thessalonica has it all right. They don't. But they have a lot of good that we can follow. Look to them. And what is he commending them on here? What is he boasting about? He says, for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. What was the reason for his boasting? The church was steadfast. Hupomone, the Greek, a constancy, an endurance. In the New Testament, it's the characteristic of a man who has not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest of trials and struggles. He, he doesn't matter what is coming for him. He holds on fast. He doesn't swerve. He plows right on through. This is not simply waiting. This is joyful endurance. This is hoping in the midst of trial and struggle. And he says they are steadfast and they have faith. Pointing to the Greek word here, pistis, points more to a sense of 
faithfulness or fidelity. We see this in Romans chapter 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify pistis, the faithfulness of God? Titus 2, but showing all good faith. It's the sense and fidelity and faithfulness, staying enduring and strong, not swerving. The church remained steadfast and faithful under persecutions and afflictions. We hear all about them. Turning back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, And you become imitators of the, us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, he says, That no one being moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. They were being tempted and going through various trials. They were ongoing. And it wasn't just from the Jews and the Gentiles. You notice he says, the tempter, talking about Satan himself, saying that there would be this desire to pull them away. The use of both persecutions and afflictions here make it seem as if they could be different. Affliction usually entails something that is either external or internal, though it seems as though they are meant to be synonymous here. They were not distressed, but they were under great hostility and attack. And notice he closes, he says here, persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. He's already said that they were steadfast and faithful. But now he says that you are enduring. The church in Thessalonica was not just surviving solely. Like it's just, man, if I can only do this little thing right now. But they were working towards thriving. Even in the midst of the struggle. Even as they were trying to survive day to day. They were looking towards a future hope. They were growing. And they were remaining faithful. They were under great pressure and hostility, and yet here they stood. It's almost as if they could quote Martin Luther before he was even alive and say, Here I stand, I can do no other. They had heard the gospel, they had heard the truth, they knew exactly what they believed, and they said, Here we stand, we can do no other. So church, what do we see here about this church in Thessalonica that was to be boasted about? What made them commendable? They were a saved people. They were not a church unconcerned with the salvation of its members. They were not a church that allowed for people to just be there and not call them to the gospel. So many churches today have just accepted that people can come in as they are and we ne they don't have to hear the gospel. And if they do and they believe it, great. And if they don't, well, at least they're a part of the church. It's almost good enough that you show up on Sunday and that's all you need. We've forgotten the very basics of the gospel that says you must be saved by faith and the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the only means of salvation. The church in Thessalonica gives us a blueprint, not saying that our church isn't already doing this, but gives us a blueprint to say, call people to repentance and faith. Call one another to repentance and faith. 
Remind them of the gospel. Remind them of the work of the gospel. Remind them of all of the things that come by grace. Don't be like these large mega churches that just have thousands of people that come in on a Sunday with nobody ever asking them, do you know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? It pains me to think of these mega churches with 10,000 or 20,000 people on a weekend. How many of those people are not accounted for? How many of those people show up week in and week out, drop their money in the bin, and they never once are asked, have you actually heard the gospel? Have you actually believed it? Have you acknowledged your sin and your need for salvation? Have you repented and believed on Christ? What a scary thought. May we never be like that. Even if our church grew to be thousands, may we never be a church that ever puts behind numbers, behind anything, the gospel and truth. Secondly, there were a church that was growing. And notice he doesn't talk about the numbers. He doesn't talk about the building or the money. He doesn't talk about anything like that. Rather, he says they are growing in faith and they are growing in love. They are growing in the areas of importance. Paul would not have commended them if they were simply growing in numbers because there was no fruit. He didn't look to them and say, well, the church has added a few members. That's really good to hear. No, he looks at them and he says, what does the fruit say about them? I don't care if there was five or ten or fifteen or twenty or a thousand or two thousand or three thousand. What is the fruit of the church? Are they growing in faith? Are they growing in love? They were showing the sanctifying work of the Spirit occurring within the midst of the church. This means that the church was doing what the church is called to do. The sanctifying work comes when the church is committed to the things that they are supposed to do. It's committed to gathering. It's committed to worship, to prayer, to the proclamation of the word, to sharpening one another, to church discipline, to fellowship. When the church is doing what it's been called to do, the sanctifying work of the Spirit is flourishing. And finally, the church was one that was steadfast. They were built, or they were being built tough. The church in Thessalonica was being persecuted regularly by the Jews and the Greeks there. They were determined to stamp out this burgeoning church. They wanted to make sure that it would never come back. It threatened everything. It, it was going to cause a complete upheaval, right? It said it turned the world upside down. And the church was also battling false prophets and false teachings. They were in the midst of a pagan city where there was false gods and celebrating all types of idols. However, in the midst of all of it, Paul says he boasts about their steadfastness and faith in all the churches. They were a steadfast church. So much of our church culture today has turned us to being, in a way, weak. We have no words to defend our faith. We have no strength to stand against persecution. It was sad to see as COVID happened and so many churches never reopened. So many churches just decided, eh, this isn't worth it. So many churches just gave up. They had no backbone to stand on. They had nothing to hold them firm. 
Let, uh, let us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ be encouraged by men and women who have gone before us, who have stood the test of time, that have shown up now in the scriptures and said, you are steadfast and faithful. May we echo looking at Martin Luther, as I just mentioned earlier, a man who went before what was the world at that time. They say Martin Contramundo, right? In front of the whole world and said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. So what about us? Well, these are all things we should strive for as a church. We should be a church that is a saved church. We should be a church that is a spirit-filled church. We should be a church that is growing in faith and love, right? And we should be a church that is steadfast. We are not experiencing hardships in the way that the Thessalonians did. I haven't heard of anyone, at least in our church, that has had their homes taken away because of their faith. Or have had to lose a job because of their faith. We are not experiencing hardship and persecutions the way that the Thessalonians did. But we are all facing various challenges and spiritual battles. We're living in a broken world. In a fallen world. And since we are, we are going to face trials. So how are we responding? How are we battling? Friends, this short intro to this letter should be an encouragement for us as individuals and as a church. May we grow in faith and love as saved believers in the Lord Jesus, knowing the day will come when we will experience persecutions and various kinds of trials and desiring that we stand firm together in the faith. And let us pray.